But there are a lot of fears associated with wild mushrooms. And it's interesting because a lot of the fears that you hear about, they come from the outside and they try to penetrate the inside. There are conservative estimates, a couple hundred thousand species. There are more liberal estimates between 1.5 to 5.1 million species. And just so you gain a grasp on how large that number is, that's about six times the amount of plants on planet Earth. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Survival Show podcast with David and me, Craig, where it's our job to take you step by step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster, and show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. What's up, David? What is up, man? Hey, we we mixed it up a little bit. You did the intro. That's fantastic. And we're going to mix it up some more. We have a fantastic guest today, and I, so I don't want to—I don't want to spend much time on this intro stuff. But our guest, that I'm really excited about, is going to help us all increase our survival, foraging, and self-reliance IQs, so that we can all leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than we are right now at the beginning. And our guest is Adam Harriton. He's the founder of LearnYourLand.com and Learn Your Land on YouTube. Adam is a naturalist from the great state, I've been waiting to say this, Craig, great state of Pennsylvania, and he's a foraging expert, in my opinion, who my wife and I learned about, I'm going to say it's about two years ago, Craig, and I immediately became interested in learning more from Adam the first time that I heard him. He's just got a really enthusiastic, scientific, and practical way of demystifying the topic of mushrooms in particular. He's got a real passion for it. You can you can tell, and you guys are going to hear that shortly. So today, Adam is going to just, he's going to do that for us. He's going to de- demystify mushrooms. And we're going to talk about the benefits and dangers of mushrooms. We're going to talk about truths, lies, and myths of, around mushrooms. Why mushrooms should be a part of your practical knowledge database how mushrooms can benefit us in an extended catastrophic or society-altering event. We'll talk about the best ways to get started, mushrooms you can find right now, and resources for your further study, and a lot more. I'm really excited about this, Craig. How about you? Yeah, dude, this is going to be a fantastic topic. Adam, is I've been checking him out on uh, social media ever since you mentioned that we might be interviewing him got fantastic content we'll make sure that gets listed in the description below all the links for that stuff but before we get into that i want to make sure that everybody knows that hey i'm talking on a headset got a computer got internet connection and all that stuff does not come free so hashtag hbo help a brother out make sure that we continue the podcast the way we need to to continue to provide you quality quality podcasting and there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You can join the tribe or help us out over at the survivalshow.com website. Tiny guides and cards are on Amazon and cards or guides and cards and bulk 10 packs are available with the new pocket and Altoids 10 survival kits over at tinysurvival.com. Check it out. Got a discount for you. I uh, I had to smack David around to get this 10% discount for you, but but uh, just use tiny 10 
to go over there and pick up some cool stuff. And that way David's taking care of you on the discount. And if you've gotten the tiny guider card, please go over to Amazon and give us a five-star review for the guider card with a nice written view. I cannot tell you how much this helps. And always it's a sportsman's guide month, every other month. So make sure you check out the sportsman's guide. There's uh, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on there. As we mentioned last week, which we dug into a little bit, you can get a 30 day free trial of sportsman's guide buyers club which you'll save 10% there every single day. Get free shipping over 49 bucks and get interest-free for pay and get members-only deals. Again, fantastic place. We talked about all their high reviews and all that good stuff over the last couple of weeks, so check out Sportsman's Guide. You ready to get in this, dude? Yeah, man. Let's bring Adam in. Okay, everybody, as you all know, we're working our way through the tiny guide, and we've been camping out in the food sections, right, Craig? In section K, L, and M, I believe. That's right, yeah. Section M's all about foraging, and uh, so we've been talking through the seven rules of foraging, and rule number four is, Craig emphasizes this, in a survival situation, never eat wild mushrooms, but... But with the proper foreknowledge and careful practice, wild mushrooms are literally a treasure trove of free medicine. So to bring somebody in to really step us through understanding medicinal plants, I could not think of anyone better to bring in here to start us down the right path to understanding wild mushrooms than Adam Harriton. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm excited, yeah. Adam. This is going to be good. So we we uh, one of the things we try to emphasize is you got to have good knowledge on edible medicinal plants, particularly mushrooms. And uh, you're you're the man when it comes to such things. So we're looking forward to having you on here. If you don't <laughs> care, because um, yeah, I, I read everything trying to because fortunately, unfortunately, I haven't met you in person. So I tried to look you up online and check your stuff out. Your social media, everything looks fantastic. And we'll make sure everybody can find that later on in the podcast. But before we get started, tell us, uh, you know, about yourself. What, what do you do? How did you start learning your land and, and all that goes along with that? Yeah, certainly. So I run an organization called Learn Your Land, and I started it about four to five years ago. And I created it because I was basically scratching my own itch. I wanted to learn my land. And in doing so, I decided to name a company and a social media channel and a YouTube channel after that. Um, I actually wasn't raised this way, knowing a lot of things about the outdoors. I did spend some time outdoors growing up, but not in the way that, you know, many people who are really into foraging today or many people who are into the primitive skills or the outdoor skills were raised in the outdoors. Um, I was very good at academics, at music, at sports growing up. But as far as wild edibles, especially as far as mushrooms, I literally knew nothing growing up. And so later on, decades later, I mean, in my mid-20s, I kind of felt the need to learn this stuff. And I got into it surprisingly through diet and nutrition. I started becoming very, very interested in foods and how foods were affecting my body. And naturally, I discovered that some of the healthiest foods on the planet are not necessarily the ones in the grocery store, although there are a lot of healthy foods in the grocery store for sure. They're not necessarily the ones that we cultivate and that we grow in gardens or on farms, but the ones that grow naturally out in the wild. 
And so that just led me down the path. I just started soaking up as much information as I could. And I started spending a disproportionate amount of my time in nature, learning as much as I could, and then wanting to share this information. So that's what Learn Your Land is all about today. It's about myself learning this information and then not holding it within, not being selfish about it, but then sharing what I have learned. And many of the things that I put out there uh, are things that I just discovered maybe a day ago or two days ago. Now, clearly, I've been building this knowledge for a long time, but with a lot of mushrooms, I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of species that grow in my neck of the woods. And so it's very difficult to master them all in a couple of years, but I'm really excited to share this information on a timely manner, in a timely schedule, every time I go out in the woods, and then I come home and post that stuff. So that's Learn Your Land in a nutshell. That's really interesting, Fantastic. Adam. Because, yeah, the, the first, my first exposure to you was, it was probably a couple of years ago. Well, I'm going to say two years ago. And uh, what really struck me about you, my wife is really, and she got into medicinal mushrooms and plants and, and everything for the same, very similar reasons to you. It was diet and nutrition, right? And and so she listens to everybody. Like she's she has tapped into all the the different streams of knowledge as far as those topics go. And so every once in a while she says, "Oh, you've got to listen to this guy." And I I'll be honest with you, just imagine the emoji face of rolling my eyes. I I did that. She said, "This guy Adam, you got to listen to this guy." And I, I want to learn mushrooms. And um, I was making lunch or something, and she started playing uh, one of your videos, and I was like, "What?" That I I just my sense with you was that you have had a practical experiential knowledge, but you had an uncanny ability to um, gather the the scientific data and merge that all and demystify what was a mystery to me personally, uh, in a special way. So that's really interesting because I I was I'm like this guy's got to be like a high end biologist that somebody taught him how to teach like are you a teacher <laughs> or something like where where did this all come from I'm I'm fascinated by your approach and the way that you deliver the content Yeah that's funny because there's a lot of speculation in the YouTube comment section or online as to like what degrees do I hold or what university do I teach at and I mean I don't I have a degree in nutrition um and I guess that's kind of how I started to appreciate the science behind things, the science behind biology and healing as well. And when I was studying nutrition at the university level, I spent a lot of time just digging into scientific research, even on wild edible plants and wild mushrooms. And I was fortunate because whenever you do go to a university, you have access to all these journals, you have access to all these libraries. And so I took advantage of that. I might have been one of the only students in the nutrition program that kind of did that. I just kind of went above and beyond and outside of what I was being taught. And that's where I developed a real love for digging into the research as deeply as I possibly could. And that's what I try to bring out today. But I try not to make it sound too scientific where it turns people off. I try to bring it down into regular terms because, I mean, I don't speak the scientific language to anybody. Uh, and I try not to do it that technically in my videos because I want people to understand it. At the end of the day, I just want people to be interested in this stuff and to apply what I'm teaching so that it might change their lives the way it's changed my life. Can you just maybe specifically share? I, I mean, you're you're obviously passionate about this and, and it sounds like you're really passionate about wild mushrooms that comes out in everything that you do. Uh, can you cha share with us just how, how, how did this knowledge and the practice change your life? Well, I mean, just 
being outside as much as I possibly can. And these days, it's almost on a daily basis. And if it's not on a daily basis, then it's every other day or every three days. And the only reason I don't spend time outside on a daily basis is because I have the admin work to do, the editing, the paperwork, the taxes, all that kind of stuff. Or I'm traveling, I'm on the road. Um, But I have learned to see the world as not just a place for human beings. And for the first two thirds of my life, that's all I thought was out there. You know, it's just for human beings, just a bunch of human beings walking around. But now when I go out, I understand I'm not alone and I'm never alone. Like I'm never alone and no human being is alone. And whenever you start to learn plants and learn mushrooms and learn trees and learn animals and learn the mossins and learn the lichens, you realize that there are an incredible number of species that share the same home that you share. And even if you think you live by yourself, you don't. You don't live alone on your property. Just go outside. You'll see that there are dozens of species of organisms that share that place with you. And I think today when you look outside and you see how many people experience depressive symptoms or feel like they're alone or lonely, and you look at the rates of depression today, and you got to wonder, does it have anything to do with nature disconnection and not realizing that we're not alone out there? that there are so many other organisms out there that support you in more ways than you can imagine, because it's not like they're just there doing their own thing and not helping you in any way possible. And if you think that's true, then hold your breath because they're providing the oxygen for you and they're supporting the food web for you. uh, And they're helping to filter out things for you. And so you depend on these organisms just like they depend on you. I think you just tapped into Craig's love language right there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Adam, I'm a, uh, I'm a master naturalist through the university of Kentucky and I'm a woodsman and everything you just said makes my heart a flutter. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I, am, I am definitely, I am definitely keenly, uh, listening to what you're saying. I'm, I'm right on board. That's good stuff. If you want to, let's, let's start digging into mushrooms more specifically. If you don't care, are you good for that? I'm always good for that. You don't have to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Awesome. So I know we've been talking about foraging in general, but I wanted to get into the specifics of mushrooms and what kind of rules or cautions do you specifically have for those that are listening in to safely go about foraging in general or mushrooms or what have you? How, what, what kind of things do you go through in your mind as you're doing this? Well, to get started, for somebody who's absolutely brand new to foraging for wild mushrooms, it can be incredibly daunting because we're not necessarily taught about foraging growing up, Uh, definitely not in the education system, especially the one that I attended. Uh, And so if you're not familiar with wild mushrooms and all you hear about mushrooms are the headlines on the news that say three people were poisoned or somebody was poisoned from this restaurant or somebody's dog succumbed to mushroom poisoning because it ate the wrong mushroom, then you would naturally fear these things that we call mushrooms. Uh, And so two ways that I got around that early on, number one, I just started spending a lot of time out in nature looking for mushrooms. And you have to develop an eye for them. You have to start to see them. And if you don't see them, then you're still going to fear them. So you got to start seeing them. You just got to see how many there actually are. Even in the dead of winter, you can find fungal species. Just look at a stick Look at a tree, look at a piece of wood, especially in the quote unquote bad seasons of mushroom hunting, which could be the winter season. Just look and you're going to see how many fungal species are out there. So there are many out there. You just can't avoid it. And after you start spending time out there, another practical step that you can take in order to alleviate some of these fears associated with mushroom hunting is to spend time with people 
who make you feel comfortable around mushrooms. And the easiest way to do this is to join a mushroom club. And it sounds like, where is the nearest mushroom club? Like, how could there possibly be mushroom clubs out there? There's probably not one near me. All you have to do is go online and search for this organization called NAMA, the North American Mycological Association. And on their website, they have a list of mushroom clubs in every state. And some states have multiple mushroom clubs. So here in Pennsylvania, we have at least three, if not four, mushroom clubs. So our state is very well represented. And most of these mushroom clubs are incredibly active. And if you just hook up with these mushroom clubs, there are people from all different ages, all different backgrounds, and they'll take you along and they'll show you the ropes and they'll make you feel comfortable around mushrooms. Because whenever I started out foraging mushrooms, I did not want to go out and pick something and then take it home and eat it. I was very, very cautious about doing such a thing. But whenever somebody told me, and it was a, a mycologist would point out something and say, yes, absolutely. You can trust me. This is 100% edible. And in some cases, they would show me. They would cook something up there. You know, they would bring a little stove out there and eat something on the spot. And I would say, okay, now I feel comfortable doing that. But there are a lot of fears associated with wild mushrooms. And it's interesting because a lot of the fears that you hear about, they come from the outside and they try to penetrate the inside. Rarely are these fears from within the community. And so it's a lot of people who don't spend time hunting mushrooms that are just propagating these myths, that are propagating these fears. And unfortunately, it seems like they have the louder voices these days. And again, a lot of it has to do with not being educated on the matter and then seeing these headlines in the news. And the only headlines you really hear about are the poisoning cases. But that's crazy to fear mushrooms just based on that because it would be like watching the news and assuming that it's dangerous to live in houses because all you hear about are houses burning or houses being broken into or gunshots inside houses and you would say, oh, I'm never going to own a house or live in a house because that's all I hear about on the news. Well, it's the same thing with mushroom hunting. That's all you hear. You're going to fear it. So spend time out in the woods looking for mushrooms and then spend time with people who know something about mushrooms and then you will get comfortable hunting wild mushrooms. And you could just start off with some of the easy ones. I mean, there are a lot of species out there and there are a lot of easy to identify wild mushrooms. And many people call these mushrooms the foolproof four. And it always differs depending on where you live and depending on the time of year and depending on what you consider to be an easy to identify wild mushroom. But maybe we can go over some of those foolproof four um, for the listeners if you want to do that. Yeah, let's go ahead and dig into them. Go ahead. Do uh, you want to do that now or you want to do that later? Yeah, we could just we could just continue with that. So, I mean, with some of the foolproof yeah, four, do. basically we're talking about choice edible mushrooms. And whenever you hear the word choice, it can sound confusing if you're not into like food and culinary skills and especially foraging. Uh, but choice basically means it's one of the best. It's almost unanimously agreed that this is a mushroom worth foraging. And it could be a choice edible plant as well. But in this case, we're talking about mushrooms. And again, it depends on where you live. It depends on uh, what you consider to be an easy to identify wild mushroom. But these are mushrooms that are delicious when cooked. So I got to stress that because whenever we talk about wild mushrooms, in almost every case, an edible mushroom means it's edible when cooked because some mushrooms you definitely do not want to consume raw, but you can make them edible whenever you cook them. And then these are also very easy to identify. So for anybody new to mushroom foraging, I would recommend starting with something called a foolproof four. And these are four mushrooms and they could be the foolproof five or foolproof six, whatever number you want to throw out there, but a few choice edible mushrooms so they taste delicious when cooked. You don't want to consume them raw, but when cooked, that are also very easy to identify with very few, if any, toxic lookalikes. 
And so the foolproof four differs depending on where you live, differs depending on the time of year and what you consider to be a choice edible mushroom or an easy to identify edible mushroom. But generally, there are a couple species that are agreed upon as being part of the foolproof four. And my foolproof four for the autumn months include mushrooms that do not contain gills underneath. And so whenever we talk about gills, we're talking about fertile structures of mushrooms. And if you're unfamiliar with that term gills, just look at a portobello mushroom or shiitake mushroom. Underneath the cap, you can see these plate-like structures. There are many of them that circle the cap of the mushroom underneath and they connect to that stem. So those are gills. And all these mushrooms that I'm about to describe in the full four do not contain those. And some pretty toxic mushrooms do contain gills. There are a lot of edible mushrooms that contain gills as well. But if you avoid the mushrooms right in the beginning of your mushroom foraging journey that contain gills, you can be pretty safe as far as, you know, picking a wild mushroom and getting a positive identification on it and getting a mushroom into your basket that could be considered edible and not as dangerous as something that does contain gills, like an Amanita mushroom or a deadly Gallarina mushroom or some other mushrooms that do contain these gills. So right off the bat, some four that I can think of that would be part of this foolproof four include the maitake mushroom, which is out there right now. The maitake mushroom is also known as hen of the woods or sheep's head, also known as griffola frondosa. Yes, these are all names to describe one mushroom. And most people generally just use the scientific name whenever trying to agree upon one name, which is why it could be important to just learn scientific names of mushrooms. So this one grows typically at the bases of oak trees during the autumn months. And typically August, September, October, even into early November, you will see this mushroom growing at the bases of oak trees and some other hardwood trees. It has gray to brown overlapping caps, and it has pores on the underside. So it does not contain gills underneath those caps. So again, we're avoiding the gilled mushrooms just starting out, and we're focusing on mushrooms that do not contain gills. So the maitake could be number one. Another easy to identify edible mushroom would be chicken of the woods. This is in the late deporous genus. This mushroom is also known as the chicken mushroom, also known as sulfur shelf. And this is a bright orange mushroom that grows in overlapping cl clusters on wood. And underneath that cap, you will see pores that are typically yellow or white or peachish. Again, this is another choice edible mushroom that's pretty easy to identify with few, if any, toxic lookalikes. Another choice edible mushroom this time of year. Let me ask you a quick question. As far as these oak trees for uh, hen of the woods, is it a live oak tree or a dead oak tree? And same for chicken of the woods. Both for both of those mushrooms. So in some cases, mushrooms will only fruit from dead trees. In some cases, mushrooms will only fruit on living trees. And in some cases, mushrooms will fruit on both living and dead trees. And it all goes back to the ecological roles of mushrooms, what they're doing to these trees. So generally speaking, if you're finding a mushroom on a living tree, there's a good chance that it could be parasitizing that tree. If you're finding a mushroom on a dead tree, there's a good chance it's just breaking down the dead tissue. Uh, but there are many exceptions to that. But with hen of the woods, that's considered to be a weak parasite. So you typically see that on living oak trees, but you'll also see it on dead oak trees. Uh, I tend to have more luck looking on living trees, surprisingly. With chicken of the woods, you're looking at both living and dead trees. I typically find it on fallen logs or standing snags or stumps, um, but it'll grow on living trees as well. So that's a good question. And then, um, and so moving forward, a third foolproof four mushroom could be a lion's mane mushroom. These are mushrooms that have spines that point downward. Uh, they're 
all white whenever they start out and they kind of brown and turn yellow with age. Again, this one grows on a tree and it's a decomposer of woody material. It'll grow on a living tree. It'll grow on a dead tree. I typically find it on fallen logs, sometimes on stumps, but many people find it 10, 20, 30 feet high up on a living tree. So it all depends on where you are, depends on what that mushroom prefers at that point in time. Very few lookalikes to lion's mane mushrooms. And this is a mushroom that kind of tastes like seafood whenever you cook it. And few, if any, toxic lookalikes to that. And the last one that I would include this time of year in the autumn months is a foolproof four member. Might be a puffball mushroom and more specifically a giant puffball. Because of that large size, you're literally the size of volleyballs or soccer balls or even bigger than that. Because of that giant size, nothing really looks like that unless it's a soccer ball or a volleyball or a bag of trash or something else that's not fungal. And so it's just big and white and it's not hairy. There typically aren't spots or striations or anything like that. And you want to cut that thing in half. And as long as it's pure white inside at that large stage, then there's a good chance it is the giant puffball and it is edible. But once it discolors, once it turns yellow or olive colored or even purplish, or if it's very dark inside, you do not want to eat those puffballs at that stage. Hey, got to go back real quick because I'm a tree nerd. Uh, is there a particular tree species that your lion's mane prefers to be growing on? Deciduous trees. Deciduous trees. Oh. I've never found them on conifer trees, but as far as which species, with lion's mane, I tend to find them on oak trees. Many different species of oak, whether it's scarlet oak or northern red oak or a white oak tree. That's typically where I find lion's mane. Many people find them on maples as well. Uh, but a variety of deciduous trees. Now, there are three different species of Heresia mushrooms, and Heresium is the genus that lion's mane belongs to here in eastern North America. And they all seem to prefer different trees. So that second one, there's bear's head tooth, looks like lion's mane. I typically find that on beech trees, so American beech trees. Then there's another one called comb tooth or coral tooth. It's another Heresium lion's mane-like mushroom. That one I find on oak trees, uh, similar to uh, lion's mane. But I've also seen it on maple trees and a variety of other trees. But I've never seen them on conifer trees. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I mean, that's why the foolproof four is the foolproof four, because they don't really look like anything else. Um, a lot of gilled mushrooms look like one another. They got gills on the underside. Uh, you got to be very discerning whenever you harvest those and decide to eat them. Just when you're starting out, after you've been doing this for a while, I mean, harvest all the edible gilled mushrooms that you want. Like, I'm not going to stop you. I eat a lot of gilled mushrooms. But just starting out, you're looking for these mushrooms that are edible, that look very unique. It almost don't even look like your typical example of a mushroom. Like lion's mane, you're absolutely right. It looks more like coral or it looks like a frozen waterfall uh, or icicles on wood. So yeah, you're right. It doesn't look like anything else. And the only things that it does look like is other members of that genus, which are all edible. Now, as a general rule of thumb, uh, there's a lot of folks that, that discuss the maybe lack of nutritional content uh, or, or calories that in survival, this is a survival show podcast, as Craig reminds us so often, for survival as far as a, a foraging wild edible, is it is it worth the risk is one, my first part of the question. And uh, 
two, can you then speak to the medicinal superpowers of mushrooms and, and, you know, maybe bring us in from that direction too? Yes. So from a survival standpoint, I, I don't really approach mushroom foraging with a survivalist mindset, but I'll put myself in that situation right now. In my situation, because I've been foraging mushrooms for so many years, if I was literally starving and I found wild edible mushrooms and I had the ability to cook them, I would eat them so long as I could positively identify them. For people just starting out, if you don't know wild edible mushrooms, I would not recommend picking mushrooms and trying to apply a rule of thumb to determine if it's edible or not. If you're finding mushrooms, there are plenty of plants that you could harvest at the same time. I would probably opt for those instead. Uh, You could probably find some nuts that are falling or that are still on the tree. You could probably find some tubers that are going to contain way more calories than mushrooms would. And so the nutritional profile of mushrooms, you're right, it does not contain a lot of calories. And so many nutritionists actually recommend eating wild mushrooms because of that fact, because you do feel full, but it's mostly because you're consuming a lot of fiber. So there's a lot of fiber in mushrooms. There's not a lot of calories. So it can displace other things that we would be consuming and make us feel full. So you tend to eat less if you're eating mushrooms as part of a meal, but you still feel very full. So you're getting a lot of fiber eating mushrooms. Yes, you're getting nutrients as well. I mean, mushrooms are good sources of minerals like potassium and magnesium and a little bit of iron. Um, You've got some vitamins in there as well. Generally speaking, though, whenever you're talking about the health benefits of mushrooms, most people get really excited about the medicinal side of mushrooms, which is what you mentioned just a few seconds ago. And I mean, if you're in a survival situation, I don't see why you'd want to harvest a mushroom to use for medicinal purposes right on the spot. Um, But if you're in a nice, comfortable habitat and you got all things dialed in and covered and you want to proceed with researching the medicinal side and making medicines, then by all means, go ahead. But there's a lot of great research that's coming out right now on the medicinal aspect of mushrooms. Um, they've, they contain various compounds like polysaccharides and beta-glucans that seem to support the immune system in human beings. And so whenever we're talking about the medicinal side of mushrooms, we're not just talking about studies that are done on rats or studies that are done on animals or just cellular cultures, just petri dish or test tube studies. We're talking about multiple studies that are conducted on human beings. And if we just put that medicinal side of mushrooms aside for just a second and just looking at the nutritional side, there are many long-term studies that show that people in cultures and populations that consume mushrooms seem to have lower rates of cancer or lower rates of dementia overall compared to the people who do not consume mushrooms as part of their diets. Now, it's difficult to make a strong causation relationship between mushroom consumption and staving off dementia or staving off cancer. But it seems that the populations in these studies that do consume mushrooms as part of their diets seem to fare better than those who don't consume mushrooms. So that's a reason right there to maybe consume more mushrooms as part of the diet. But the medicinal side, the studies seem to support that mushrooms have anti-cancerous properties, antiviral properties, anti-tumor properties. Again, not just in petri dishes, not just on animals, but in human beings as well. And it's these beta-glucans and these polysaccharides that make up the cell wall of mushrooms that seem to have these immunosupportive benefits for human beings. There's a lot of good research out there that anyone can research just by typing in the words mushroom medicinal in a search engine online. That's fantastic, man. So I guess it'd probably worth our while to go ahead and get started on, on demystifying these things in general. 
So if, if you could, would you care to discuss some of the steps that you take as a, or, or what you recommend to beginners particularly, and then maybe step it up to even more advanced folks on how to identify and learn and, and start our study on mushrooms? Yeah, certainly. So first of all, whenever it comes to wild mushrooms, one of the most common questions I receive is, how can I tell if a mushroom is edible or toxic? Like, what can I apply to it? What kind of information can I apply? What kind of general rule of thumb can I apply to this mushroom that's growing in my backyard to determine if it's edible or if it's medicinal or if it's toxic or what it's going to do with me? Well, unfortunately, there's nothing that you can apply to it. There's no general rule of thumb. There's not a color you can look at. There's not a structure you can look at. There's not a smell. There's not a taste. There's not something about its ecological role, like what it's growing on. That will tell you if it's edible or not. So you have to learn each mushroom one at a time. Even mushrooms within the same genus, like we talked about Heresium, that lion's mane genus. All mushrooms in that genus worldwide, there aren't that many, but all of them are considered to be edible when cooked. Now there are other genera, which is the plural of genus, of mushrooms that have edible mushrooms in them, but they also contain poisonous mushrooms. There's a genus known as the Amanita genus, A-M-A-N-I-T-A. This is a large genus of mushrooms, over 500 species, probably closer to 1,000, but we haven't described them all in the research, so we're going to say about 500 species right now. There are a lot of edible mushrooms in that genus. There are hallucinogenic mushrooms in that genus. There are mushrooms whose edibility status we don't know. There are mushrooms in that genus that are just benign. They don't taste that good. Uh, the texture just isn't there, or they wouldn't do anything in the cooking pan. They would just like turn to mush. And there are deadly poisonous mushrooms in that genus as well. So it's a very large genus that kind of spans everything as far as the use for human beings. And so you really just got to learn each mushroom one at a time, not each genus one at a time, not each family one at a time, but literally each mushroom. And then you could just add them to your list. And I mean, if you just learn 10 mushrooms a year, I mean, in 10 years, you're going to have 100 mushrooms that you can eat. And honestly, I don't even think I eat 100 wild mushroom species. I probably have over the years, but I mean, there's probably 20 to 30 that I really get excited about. So you don't have to learn a bunch of the edible ones because I mean, after mushroom number 30, they all kind of taste the same or they're edible, but they're not really anything to brag about. And so I just focus on like 10, 20, 30 edible mushrooms uh, and that's about it. And I just appreciate and photograph all the rest. So right off the bat, there's no general rules of thumb. You just got to learn them one at a time. A lot of people might assume that if a mushroom's growing on a particular substrate, it tells you something, if it's edible or not. Like if a mushroom is growing on a tree, I hear this all the time. If a mushroom's growing on a tree, then it's safe for consumption compared to the mushrooms that grow terrestrially out of the ground. That's not a general rule of thumb that I would ever, ever apply because there are deadly poisonous mushrooms that grow on trees. Now, yes, most of the poisonous mushrooms that are deadly toxic do seem to grow terrestrially, but there are exceptions. There, the deadly gallerina is a very poisonous mushroom that contains deadly toxic compounds that almost fruits exclusively on wood, deciduous wood or conifer wood. So you could just throw that rule of thumb right out the window right there. It doesn't matter if it's growing on a tree. All it tells you is that it's probably breaking down that tree. That's all you can determine from that. Some people want to apply the general rule of thumb that if an animal is seen eating a mushroom, then that means that it's safe for you as well. That's not true at all. There are a lot of wild animals that can consume even the deadliest poisonous mushroom in the world. 
Squirrels and chipmunks, for example, seem to be able to eat some of those deadly poisonous Amanita mushrooms. But human beings would get very, very sick, if not die, eating those mushrooms. And just because a wild animal is eating it does not mean that your domesticated animal, your pet, can eat it. It seems that pets, even mushrooms that are edible for humans, can get sick eating some of those mushrooms. So you got to be cautious about letting your pets run around in the yard. And if you see a squirrel eating that mushroom, definitely does not mean that your dog or your cat can eat that mushroom. Every year, there are a lot of poisoning reports associated with pet consumption of mushrooms. As far as colors of mushroom, you know, with plants and even with some animals, many people tend to look at the colors. And if it's brightly colored, it might mean that it's toxic or you might have to take special preparation in order to detoxify it. Well, there's nothing like that in the mushroom world. There are a lot of brightly colored edible mushrooms. There are a lot of brightly colored poisonous mushrooms. And the reverse is true with mildly colored mushrooms like white mushrooms. There are a lot of edible white mushrooms. There are a lot of deadly poisonous white mushrooms as well. So you got to learn each mushroom one at a time. And as far as cooking, we kind of mentioned this a little earlier. If you're just starting out foraging mushrooms and you hear that a mushroom is edible, I always recommend, especially when I'm teaching because I'm speaking to large audiences, cook those mushrooms and cook them well. Because there are edible mushrooms that are toxic raw. Maybe you are familiar with morel mushrooms. You know, morels are some of the most choice edible mushrooms. Everybody's eager to get out and look for morel mushrooms in the springtime because they're delicious wild edible mushrooms. However, they are considered toxic raw. And you hear about poisoning reports. People consume them raw. They put them on salads or they serve them to other people. You can get seriously, seriously ill eating those raw morels. And so just because a mushroom is edible does not mean that it's edible raw. It's edible when cooked. And so those are just some general rules that I hear about that can be debunked in a second. There are a lot of other myths thrown out there, but the more that you hang out with the community, the more that you'll realize a lot of those myths do come from the outside, from people who don't spend a lot of time foraging mushrooms. Uh, but unfortunately, they do make their way into the community. We're, we're definitely going to get into how people can follow you because you've got some fantastic, I was just looking and uh, sent you a friend request or follow on uh, Instagram on um, mushroom education. But as far as a person going out here, obviously I think they should take your recommendation and find somebody that they can train with. But what, what do you recommend as resources to mushroomexpert.com or do you pick up a Peterson guide or how do you go about that type of self-learning and, and how should people go about that to make sure they're safe? Yeah, that's a great question. So number one, I always recommend the mushroom club because there are plenty out there. And just going out with people who know what they're doing, in my opinion, that's the best. And a lot of people have similar experiences. I mean, that's how I learned. So I can't really speak based on too many other people's experiences. I started feeling very comfortable early on just hanging out with people. And they take you to some of their secret spots, let me just tell you, which is always a plus because it's not always easy to find spots. Just because you know what a mushroom looks like doesn't mean you're going to have an easy time finding these things. So people can take you around, show you the lay of the land as well, because there's more to hunting mushrooms than just hunting mushrooms. Like I mentioned before, it's very wise to learn tree identification because in so many cases, mushrooms will fruit almost exclusively with a particular species of tree or a genus of tree or a group of trees. Uh, and if you know where those trees are, go to those areas rather than just blindly walk through the woods and hope that you're going to stumble across that. 
And so that's why I also recommend hanging out with people who are plant folks as well. Like if there's a botanical club in your area or somebody's leading a plant walk, that's only going to help you become a better mushroom hunter. There are a lot of great websites out there. I don't use a ton of them other than to compare pictures that I've found. Uh, it seems that because mushroom taxonomy is constantly changing, um, if you try to stay up to date with the Latin names or the scientific names of mushrooms, you'll quickly realize that every single year there's a new list to learn. And it can be very, very daunting and very, very frustrating. And so it kind of makes a lot of these books and websites obsolete or outdated if they don't update them regularly. Now, sure, you can use older field guides and then you can plug that name in online and then it'll give you the newer name, but it can be confusing if you're just starting out. Interestingly, a good way to learn mushrooms is if you have a Facebook account, there are so many mushroom groups, mushroom identification groups, mushroom discussion groups, and you see what people are finding literally in real time. I mean, if you just make your newsfeed on Facebook, just those mushroom groups, those mushroom identification groups, you see what people are posting. You see what they're finding. Many times they give the exact county where they're finding. Sometimes they give the same exact park where they're finding it. And you can just go right out to those areas and see if they're still growing. Um, but I find a lot of value in that. I try not to spend a lot of time on Facebook, but it's been such a big help for learning mushroom identification. And there's a lot of people who are stickler for scientific names on Facebook. And so they'll make it known really quickly if you're right or if you're wrong. And they'll correct you. And a lot of times people's egos get into it and people get angry and get mad. But if you can just like put those egos aside, you can learn pretty quickly. Books are good. Like I mentioned before, there are some downsides to them. I do have some books, but generally I don't use a lot of them unless they're very specific to a particular genus or to a particular group of mushrooms. But it seems like the books that try to cover everything and they don't specialize in any one thing. They might be good just to get a general feel of mushroom morphology and maybe to read the descriptions of the mushrooms so you get the language into your system. Um, but I don't really walk around the woods with those books. I tend to just find mushrooms, bring them home, uh, try to key them out online or try to find like a PDF file of a key for a particular genus. And I know this is getting more advanced right now, but sometimes it's what you got to do. But just understand that this is a long process. It's just like learning any kind of skill, whether it's carpentry, uh, whether it's piano, whether it's a sport, whether it's gymnastics, you're never going to master it within six months. You're not going to master it at the end of the year. Heck, you're never going to master it because you can always take it to another level. Uh, and so keep that in mind, just be patient with it and just have fun because it's more about the journey in my experiences, getting into all these cool places, encountering things that might not even be mushroom related because you just got into neat areas that you would never have explored otherwise. And so it's more about that many times than the destination, which is the mushroom that you're looking for. Hey, I would like to throw a quick plug in. I know a lot of people that listen to the podcast are here in Kentucky. Um, as Adam mentioned, Facebook groups, there's the bluegrass mycological society on Facebook. That's where I find myself studying mushrooms here in Kentucky. So for those that are listening from Kentucky, check that out on Facebook. So great recommendations, Adam, very great recommendations. Adam, this is all really fantastic. And something you said just sparked another question in me. It sounds like, I mean, after all this time, we are, are, we have so much technology. We have so many, so much knowledge now that's accessible. And it sounds to me like we're really still just discovering mushrooms. You, you say that the taxon, taxonomy and the, the Latin names are changing and, 
and becoming more specific or whatever. Can you just share briefly, like what's driving this, what sounds like increased interest in mycology mushrooms? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one I think about often, you know, for a very long time, scientists did not know how to categorize mushrooms, uh, even up until a couple decades ago, like even into the eighties, scientists were classifying mushrooms as plants. So they were put in the plant kingdom. And if you think about the Linnaean classification system, you've got kingdom, which is near the top of the list, though nowadays people are even changing that around. But kingdom is near the top, these broad groups of organisms. So you've got plants, you've got animals, you've got bacteria, you've got protists. And mushrooms were always considered to be plants by scientists. And they are considered to be the mushroom tribe within the plant kingdom. So even if you pick up one of the number one selling books out there, which is the National Audubon Field Guide to North American Mushrooms by Gary Linkoff, which is a book that I do recommend for beginners, even though it is outdated, it's got a lot of great pictures and it can definitely help you get started. But the whole introduction refers to mushrooms as being part of the plant kingdom, uh, which is really interesting because it hasn't been edited since then, but it's still a bestseller out there. And a lot of people do recommend that book, myself included. Uh, But nowadays, you know, mushrooms are considered to be part of the fungal kingdom, which is an incredibly large kingdom of organisms. Nobody knows exactly how many species are in there. There are conservative estimates, a couple hundred thousand species. There are more liberal estimates between 1.5 to 5.1 million species. And just so you gain a grasp on how large that number is, that's about six times the amount of plants on planet Earth, which is huge because Even if you would master every single plant in your state, which would be a behemoth-like task in itself, imagine multiplying that by six, and then you'll start to understand how difficult it is to master these mushrooms. But with taxonomy, people are just constantly shuffling these things around, putting them in different genera, which is the plural of genus, or putting them in different families, putting them in different orders, and trying to discover where these things fit. And I don't know why people take that to the extreme like we're doing today. There's a lot of people who are genetically sequencing these and wanting to know exactly what these things are and finding the relationships. And I get it. I mean, I want to know the identities of a lot of these, but I also don't mind being in the mystery of it all as well. And there's something to be said about that, about just letting nature be mysterious because it is mysterious and we're never going to gain a strong grasp on everything that's out there. And we think we can do it with plants because most plants have been identified. We think we can do it with animals because almost every animal has been identified, at least here in North America. I mean, when's the last time you were walking through the woods and you just saw some kind of animal that just defied anything that you knew an animal to be? Unless it's Bigfoot or Sasquatch or some kind of like cryptozoological character. Uh, But that would be a topic for a different discussion. Many times, though, you're seeing things that if you don't even know what it is, there's some researcher that knows what that is. But with mushrooms, there's a good chance that if you go in the woods this weekend, even on your own property, you will find a species that is not in the scientific literature. It does not have a species name on it, meaning you could describe that mushroom. If you do a lot of work, you can get that published and you can name it after something. And so there's a strong push to do that today. And it's kind of like if anybody's in the botany in the 1700s, Linnaeus, who devised that Linnaean classification system, he started naming a bunch of plants and he started sending what were known as apostles around the world, collecting plants and naming them and trying to categorize every single plant on the continent. That's kind of where we are today with mycology and mushrooms. There's a lot of people who are going out, collecting these things, trying to put names on them. But I'll tell you what, it's going to take a very, very long time to do so because 5.1 million species, that's no small number. 
That's a massive number. And it doesn't just include mushrooms that we see. Don't forget that the fungal kingdom also includes molds and it includes yeasts. So many things that are microscopic because the fungal kingdom is a kingdom of microorganisms as well. Whenever we see a mushroom, we're just seeing a fruiting structure. We're seeing the apple in the apple tree or the cherry on the cherry tree. It's the fruiting body. But the vast majority of the fungal organism is in the substrate. It's in the soil or it's in the tree or it's in some kind of substrate that largely goes unseen and we don't really see it. So that makes identification difficult as well. We're only basically looking at the sexual structure of an organism and trying to identify it. So all these things combined, it's probably just better to remain in the mystery with the fungal kingdom (laughs) rather than try to figure it all out. I don't think we're going to do it anytime soon, but I guess I'm hopeful that maybe the next couple hundred years we'll gain a somewhat stronger grasp on it and if we don't that's perfectly fine maybe that's the way nature designed it to be so i have a question from a survival perspective last week uh, every once in a while i like to try and stump craig so we had a stump the craig question and i'm just going to throw this at you and see see what you say as far as is there uh some sort of passion that people should have to learn more about mushrooms based on this scenario. So here's the scenario, Adam. Let's just say that a year from now, 365 days, somehow we knew that, that we would be going back approximately 150 years to the 1870s with no electric, no basic utilities or a communication grid. Uh, last time, Craig, was, you know, how do we prepare now? for then. And last time Craig mentioned a a few things. He did a really good job talking about personal safety, shelter, water, food, uh, and, and first aid. So from a first aid medical medicinal perspective in this particular scenario, do you see, like, if you knew this was going to happen, would you recommend that people start learning some mushrooms for medicinal purposes? Like, do you see any, any survival uh, application in this certain scenario? Yes. I can think of, I can think of three examples. Uh, Two are probably stronger. Uh, Number one, a few fungal species act as coal extenders. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Utsi the Iceman, the naturally preserved mummy found in the, Italian Alps in 1991, and he was reported to be 5,000 years old. And on this body were two fungal specimens, or two species, I should say. Uh, One was the birch polypore, which supposedly he was using for medicinal purposes. And the other one was the tinder fungus, which he was using to carry fire with him. So it seems that some of these fungal species are able to extend coal, like like an ember, and you can travel with it without it going out. So I could see somebody learning a few species that have the ability to do that. And interestingly, a few species that grow on birch trees do that. So the tinder fungus is one, and the chaga fungus, Inonotus obliquius, which many people talk about for its medicinal properties, can also hold an ember for a very, very, very long time. So you can essentially travel uh, while carrying fire with you, if you know those few species, and get uh, uh, an ember started. Uh, Another example might be that birch polypore again. Many people have used it in survival situations as a styptic. And it seems to have like blood clotting effects. So if you cut yourself and you kind of crush up some of that inner material and you apply it to your wound, it might be able to slow down the bleeding process or stop it 
completely. Now, if you hack off your arm, I wouldn't go running to that mushroom and try to apply that mushroom. But with minor cuts, minor abrasions, that could be a mushroom worth seeking. Uh, of course, the nutritional and the medicinal, which would be number three in my opinion. But again, you're talking about things that don't really have a lot of calories, but have a lot of fiber, have some nutritional qualities. Medicinal qualities, I mean, if you have the ability to make teas and decoctions, these things are very nourishing uh, and they taste very good. And if nothing else, they can boost your morale and boost your spirits. Um, so I would definitely learn mushrooms and use mushrooms in those situations. It probably wouldn't be the number one thing that I would focus on. Um, maybe I would just because I'm so obsessed with them. So that's just like the way I see the world, everything through mushrooms and the benefits of mushrooms. Um, but to most people going back, you know, 120 to 150 years, whatever the number is, um, there might be other things worth focusing on besides mushrooms. But those are three examples of how mushrooms probably could benefit somebody living in those times in that kind of situation. Hey, Adam, I'm going to go back to something you started right before we got off on that subject, which is good. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, but you were talking about mushrooms being the, what we see at least being the fruiting portion. And, uh, I wanted to ask you your opinion on har well, harvesting mushrooms, how spores come out. Is it a problem for people to remove a mushroom? Uh, what is its effect on the ecology of what's going on around it and the things that go along with it? Cause I love people hearing that from others. Yeah, that's a great question. And so, it's kind of going back to the mushroom myths question. Most mushroom myths have to do with two things. Number one, safety of foraging wild mushrooms. So there's a lot of myths surrounding that. But the other one is the harvesting of wild mushrooms. Like what's the best way to do it? And to answer that question, we kind of have to know about the ecology of mushrooms, which we did touch upon. Basically, when you find a mushroom, like a cap and stem mushroom or a puffball-like mushroom or a bracket fungus on a tree, you are looking at the fruit of a fungus. Again, it's the apple on the apple tree. It's the cherry on the cherry tree, the mulberry on the mulberry tree. It's the fruiting structure. And so if you think about harvesting fruits from a tree, if you harvest all the apples on a tree, did you hurt that apple tree? Probably not. Are you taking from animals? You could be, right? Uh, are you taking from a neighbor? Like if you didn't ask permission and you harvested all the apples, yeah, you could be. And so I don't want to say that it's a completely innocuous act to harvest every single mushroom that's out there because even though I love mushrooms, I don't believe that they're put on earth specifically for human beings. Clearly, there are other organisms that benefit when mushrooms are out there in the ecology of the land. And so you got to keep these things in mind. However, whenever it comes to harvesting mushrooms, it's interesting because many parks, like where I live in Pennsylvania, state parks, don't really allow you to harvest plants unless you're harvesting the fruiting structures like berries and fruits uh, and seeds. But whenever it comes to digging up wild plants, like you're not allowed to do that. And I completely get it. I understand. But you are allowed in many state parks, specifically here in Pennsylvania and in Western Pennsylvania, you're allowed to harvest mushrooms for personal consumption because they realize that mushrooms, ecologically speaking, are fruits. So you're not really damaging the organism long term. And there are a few studies out there, including a long-term study that was published about 10 years ago, I believe it was conducted in Switzerland, a very long study looking at the effect of either cutting a mushroom or pulling it up and the effect of those acts on future yields of species. And what the researchers found was that there's no discernible impact, whether you cut a mushroom or whether you pull it up completely out of the ground. There's no damaging effect to future yields or species richness within that area long term. 
Now, what did have a damaging effect long term was trampling through that ecosystem, meaning digging up or trampling or disrupting that mycelial network in the soil. But once the people left that plot area, it did seem to rebound over time. So that's why you don't see a lot of mushrooms directly on trails. Like if you're walking on a trail in the woods, you don't see a lot of species just fruiting in that heavily compacted soil because it's so disrupted by human activity. That soil is so compacted. There's really no space for mycelium to grow there. And mycelium is that vegetative underground network of a fungus. But once you get off the trail where it's less compacted, that's where you see a lot of the mushrooms fruiting. So what I recommend is that if you are harvesting mushrooms for edible purposes and you can positively identify a mushroom, let's say you're foraging chanterelles. Now we didn't talk about chanterelles yet. It could be considered a beginner's mushroom, but there are some mushrooms to watch out for that could be considered toxic when comparing them to chanterelles. If you know how to identify chanterelles, I would not recommend pulling up those mushrooms just for the simple reason that you're going to be bringing home a lot of debris and a lot of soil. And you're just going to have to clean that off. And there's just so much more work involved if you just yank them up and throw them in a basket compared to taking your knife, just making a clean incision every single time, putting that in your basket. You're saving yourself so much work down the line by doing that. Now, there is a time and a place for digging up mushrooms. And one specific example is if you're trying to identify an unknown mushroom, one of the best things you can do is actually dig it out of the ground because you want to see what features are located at the base of the stem. With some mushrooms, there are very unique and distinctive features located at the base of the stem that you would not see if you just cut that mushroom or just yanked that mushroom and broke it. And whenever we talked about that Amanita genus, which contains edible mushrooms, it contains hallucinogenic, it contains benign mushrooms, it also contains poisonous mushrooms, a key feature for that genus, many species have a little sack or a bulb at the base of the stem. And many times it's in the soil. In some cases, it's a few inches into the soil. And if you just pluck the cap off that mushroom and try to identify it, you're going to have a very difficult time doing so compared to if you would have just dug the whole thing up. Uh, but generally speaking, harvesting a lot of mushrooms doesn't seem to have any noticeable, discernible impacts on the ecosystem, at least in the short term. But I still recommend foraging with intention. I still recommend leaving some behind and not treating it like it's your playground, like it's all meant for you, because it's not meant just for you. Like you are part of this ecology, but those mushrooms are there for reasons beyond just feeding you. That's really good, Adam. That's really good. Hey, as we move towards wrapping this up, you had mentioned a foolproof four, and I, I think those were for the fall season, which we are in at the time of recording this podcast right now. Can you speak to any uh, full, foolproof one, two, three, or four for the other seasons, winter, spring, and summer? Yes, yeah, certainly. So morel mushrooms. Those are part of most people's foolproof fours because nothing really looks like morel mushrooms except other morel mushrooms. These are mushrooms that have a honeycomb pitted cap with a stalk and they're typically brownish, but some have shades of yellow, some have shades of black. Um, yes, there are mushrooms known as false morels and some of them are considered to be toxic unless you specially prepare them. And even though many people want you to believe that false morels look identical to true morels, they don't really look like them, especially if you just go through a field guide or if you see both in person, which is why it's important to go out with people who know these things. You know, Go out with a morel hunter if they're gracious enough to show you where their spot is, or at least 
ask them to go over their house after they forage or blindfold you and take you to their spot, whatever it takes, just so you can see what a true morel mushroom looks like and what a false morel looks like. Even though they're somewhat related, most false morels actually, which are in the gyromitra genus, are inert, meaning they're not going to harm you. Some people do eat them after cooking them. There are only a few that you really got to worry about. Uh, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But morels are considered to be a foolproof four for many people. That one grows in the spring, almost exclusively here in eastern North America. So March, April, May. And then summer, there's a great mushroom, which although it's easy to identify, it can be quite difficult to find because of its color. And that's the black trumpet mushroom. These are related to chanterelles and they look like black trumpets. I mean, if you picture what a trumpet looks like and you got that bell or the outer opening where it's open, that's kind of what the chanterelle looks like. It's vase shaped. It's very dark though. I mean, there are other varieties that are lighter in color, but it blends in very well with the environment. And these ones grow terrestrially. So now we're moving away from mushrooms that grow directly on wood. With the morels, you're looking at mushrooms that grow terrestrially. So out of the soil, black trumpets, the same thing. So black trumpets now, they're mycorrhizal species, which we didn't get into in this discussion, but these mushrooms form beneficial associations with oak trees and beech trees and hemlock trees. And so if you go to those areas, you might find some black trumpets. Those ones are just absolutely delicious. They smell they are sweet. fantastic. They, yeah, they yeah, were, I'm sure you've probably found a lot where you mm-hmm. live. It seems like a good and, habitat for them. And once uh, you and they, see them, you, you see them everywhere, right? Yeah, I mean, that's how it is with mushroom hunting. Once you develop a search image for it, once one pops out in the landscape, everything changes. And then you start to see them pop out almost everywhere in that given area. Um, And so nothing really looks like black trumpets that are dangerous. Now, I would probably throw oyster mushrooms in a foolproof four list as well. Yes, they have gills, but they grow directly on wood and they grow in shelf-like clusters. And to positively identify oyster mushrooms, all you have to do is go to the grocery store. Go to the produce section because most grocery stores, especially large chain ones, sell oyster mushrooms. And so you can find a mushroom that's labeled at the grocery store. It comes with the identification label. Nowhere else in the world are you going to come across mushrooms that have identification labels unless it's at a mycological meeting or if it's at a grocery store or a market. So they're doing all the work for you. And then just study that mushroom. I mean, purchase that mushroom and see what it looks like. Go through a a field guide or a key and notice what they're talking about in that key and then go out and look for it. It grows directly on wood, grows all year round as well. So that's a mushroom that you can find even in the winter months, even if there's snow on the ground, even if it's below freezing. Many times you can find a huge flush of oyster mushrooms. And there are a lot of different colors, a lot of different species, but they generally share similar morphology. So those are a couple other foolproof mushrooms that I would throw in there. And there are many more. I know I'm leaving out some, but just to start out with it, that's like seven right there. That's fantastic. And that's seven out of about 30 that, that you really focus on in your study. So that, that would get people, if they just spent the next year focusing on those mushrooms, they would be pretty far down the path, right? Really far. Because whenever we talked about lion's mane, if you learn lion's mane, you are going to learn those two lookalikes that are edible as well, which is bear's head tooth and comb tooth. So whenever you learn lion's mane, you actually learn three species. Whenever you learn morels, you're learning yellow morels and you're learning black morels. So there's two right there. And within the yellow morel uh, group of mushrooms, there are multiple species. So it's not like you're just learning one mushroom. You're actually learning multiple. And with oyster mushrooms, there's 
winter oyster mushrooms, there's summer oyster mushrooms, there's ones that grow in particular tree species, and they're all called oyster mushrooms, but they're actually different species. And so if you go through that foolproof four list or the foolproof seven, whatever I mentioned, you probably already learned 25 species, but you only really learned seven groups of them, but they all contained a few other species. And so that's one of the beauties of foraging mushrooms. A lot of them do look alike, um, and they are edible. And that's why the foolproof four don't really have any toxic lookalikes. Now, you mentioned this a little bit before, but can you, uh, taking us out of here, and then Craig's going to ask you about how people can connect with you. Can you just give people uh, a couple of steps to get started? You mentioned some really good stuff. Maybe just recap, recap how uh, somebody who's just totally new to this and they're, as you have intrigued them, you have piqued their curiosity what are three or four or five steps they can take right now easily to, to get started? So right off the bat, I'd recommend going outside and finding a mushroom. It is safe to touch almost every wild mushroom that's out there. Yes, some people have sensitivities to some mushroom species, but generally speaking here in North America, you can safely touch any wild mushroom. Just notice wild mushrooms, pick a wild mushroom, hold it, start to notice some features on it. How big is it? Is it tiny? What's the cap look like? Are there textures on the cap? What does the underside of the cap look like? Do you see gills? Do you see pores? Do you see spines or teeth? Is there a stalk in this mushroom? Was it growing terrestrially out of the soil? Was it growing near a tree? Was it growing on a tree? If so, can you identify that tree? Start to notice all these little things because every time you go out there, it's only going to become so much easier to try to find mushrooms. And it's really about developing a search image for these things. And to get rid of all this fear surrounding mushrooms, you know, this thing called mycophobia, if you just spend time in the company of mushrooms, you will alleviate those fears as much as you possibly can. Now, I understand a little bit of fear is healthy because there are some risks involved with foraging wild mushrooms, clearly, because some mushrooms are toxic. And so I don't want to say that there's no risks absolutely at all whenever you forage wild mushrooms. But because there are some risks, that means that there are great rewards to be gained. And of course, there are great rewards. I mean, whenever you find black trumpets, there are a few things that are greater at that moment than finding all those black trumpets or morels or sharing a wild foraged meal made with wild species that you forage that day. But it all starts with just going out and making yourself feel comfortable and just educate yourself as best as you possibly can. And I recommend doing it in whatever way you learn best. Some people love reading field guides. And if that's you, that's perfectly fine. I know we talked about how I don't use a ton of field guides because some of them can be outdated. They don't include everything. But if you've been using field guides for trees and birds and plants and you love that stuff, by all means, pick up every field guide that's out there. And the library makes it very easy for you. And so I'd also recommend picking up a library card, visiting your local library and seeing if they'll get some of these books in. And many times they will. And so you don't have to spend a lot of money on this. But if you like learning um, through video, watch videos on YouTube. There are plenty of mushroom videos and people kind of virtually just take you out and show you the ropes and show you how safe it can be to touch mushrooms, to bring them home and to cook them up. If you're on Facebook, I do recommend joining those mushroom identification groups, but I don't recommend relying on them to do all the identification work for you. I strongly encourage you to try to come up with an ID on your own. And this might mean you have to learn how to use a key. If you just flip at the beginning of most field guides, there should be a key there. Sometimes it's at the end of the book and you basically just choose between two options and you keep going through this key and eventually land at a final mushroom species. But by using this key, you're familiarizing yourself with the terminology 
And you're also learning other mushrooms through that process of elimination. So you're not just learning the mushroom in question, the one in your hand, you're learning all these other different mushrooms that that mushroom is not. So you're gaining all this subtle knowledge that you're not directly asking for, but it's just being infused in you through the learning process. And so, I mean, I kind of recommend using those like quick identification apps or Facebook as a last resort to almost confirm an identification or when you come up with a dead end and trying to identify it. But the more work that you do, the easier this is going to be and the faster that you'll achieve the results that you desire. Uh, and most importantly, have fun with everything. Don't let it become so daunting or so frustrating. Almost on a weekly basis, I find mushrooms, I have no idea what they are. Literally, I don't even know what genus to put them into. And it's only when I bring them home or put them under a microscope in some instances that I have some semblance of an identity. But even then, if I'm not sure, it's fine. I'm not going to eat it. But I understand that, you know, some things are just best left in the mystery and mushrooms included. And that's why I like foraging mushrooms because you'll never be bored as long as you want to hunt mushrooms. And sometimes I think that nature deficiency is literally just boredom. That's what boredom is, nature deficiency. So if you're bored, the cure for that is just learn mushrooms, um, learn your trees, learn your plants, learn as much as you can because it is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I'm fast coming to the conclusion that you're my spirit animal, Adam. So, because <laughs> you, you, uh, you're saying exactly what I would hoped you would say when David said we were going to be interviewing you. I, man, it's it's been fantastic to hear you talk about using keys and getting outside and and uh, not relying on Facebook. Oh my gosh, or these you know iNaturalist apps and stuff that go along with it. It's just thank you for saying all that. It's been fantastic. Please, uh, if you don't care, go ahead and tell everybody how they can contact and connect with you so that they can follow what you're doing on social media. Yeah, so it's three words. Learn your land. So if you search using your favorite search engine, learn your land, I'll come up if you go on Facebook or Instagram or especially on YouTube. Uh, most of my efforts today are spent towards video production and so I have over 125 videos on YouTube. And if you just search learn your land, you'll come up with all that information. And I also lead classes throughout the year and I do traveling as well, mostly in the Northeast. Um, so Pennsylvania, clearly, because this is where I live, um, into uh, the Great Lakes area, down into the South a little bit, but mostly Northeastern North America. So if you want to learn this stuff in person, you could uh, sign up for the Learn Your Land email newsletter, which I have on my website and that's just a way for me to stay in touch by putting out like interviews like this one that we're doing right now, um, things that don't make it onto my social media channels, including the events. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to stay in touch with anybody who's listening and hopefully see somebody out there at an event or maybe even in the woods someday. Yeah, man, this has been great. Thank you for your time today, Adam. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing everything you do. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Thanks good. for inviting me. I appreciate it. It was great talking to both of you. And thanks for uh, bringing awareness to the often overlooked fungal kingdom. They need all the help they can get these days. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, we're all about it, man. Thank you. And Adam, I hope to get you up here someday and we'll go looking for my talking mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll find it. Just show me where the oaks are and we'll find it. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you so much. And please come back again soon. I would love that. Thanks. 
Hey guys and gals, thank you so much again for listening into the Survival Show podcast. As we've said numerous times, when we can talk about a good subject, we're going to. And when we need an expert, we'll find somebody just like we did Adam for this one. Thanks to David. I'll offer my co-host a big thank you for finding David and getting him on. That was fantastic, man. I love I love hearing him speak about mushrooms, his passion. And he's handling himself so professionally. So that was really good so if you want continued content here's how you can help us out you can subscribe to the podcast does not cost you a dime to do that it's totally free that way you don't miss out on episodes such as this with experts many thanks to each of you who are listening have already done that can't thank you enough and if you enjoy the podcast and who doesn't enjoy the survival show podcast please share it with your friends and go over to itunes and give us a five-star rating remember Look in the description below. Look on down there right now. If you're not driving, look on down in the description. There's links there. Pretty cool links. That way you can support our sponsors. Go grab some tiny survival guides and cards. Check out all of Adam's links and all that good stuff. I think that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Actually, we won't see you. We'll be talking to you next time on the Survival Show Podcast. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp. <laughs>